Hi, everybody. Dr. Stephanie Hayes is with me, and you're going to be treated to information about SIBO, about infertility, a potential connection. I can't wait to hear what she has to say between those two things. She is a naturopath. She is someone who so many of the other people on the summit uh, know and respect, and we are absolutely thrilled and honored to have her here. I can't wait to talk to her. I've been waiting over a year to talk to her about this. So I am very, very excited. And she's here with us coming in live, so to speak, from Oregon. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Hayes. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Let's just dive right in. You, you do treat a lot of people with SIBO and also with fertility issues. Tell us how you have observed a relationship between those two, if you would. Um, I think the relationship came about uh, over several years of practice, um, especially with a lot of my patients who had unexplained infertility um, or fertility struggles um, from PCOS or endometriosis. And uh, a lot of them didn't have GI issues. Um, some of them did. Um, but because a lot of my colleagues are experts in SIBO, uh, when I kind of got to the end of my list of things that I was doing with them and was looking for other things to explore, um, we started trying SIBO tests um, on a lot of my patients. And um, surprisingly, many of them came up highly positive, um, usually with a methane type SIBO overgrowth. Um, which was really surprising for us. And a lot of them didn't have the constipation pattern uh, that a lot of methane type SIBO does. Um, but uh, oftentimes with that, they had, had had constipation as young adults or young kids, but had learned over the years how to manage it. So they came in and it was no longer a struggle or an issue. So it wasn't even something that they brought up. And sometimes they literally never really struggled with much GI stuff besides some occasional bloating. But uh, when we addressed that aspect, uh, it seemed to make a significant effect on their pelvic bowl health and their women's health. So, Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. That's so interesting. Right. They probably figured out how to do the magnesium or whatever over the years. Mm -hmm. Yep. And what to eat, what not to eat. And just sort of self-selected with their diet, self-treated with their diet. And so then it was no longer an issue because most of my patients are usually in their mid to late 30s, early 40s uh, when they're coming in to see me. And that's a lot of time to manage your bowels. Yes. <laughs> and so to get to that point, uh, it usually was not an issue, but then they were struggling with other uh, women's health issues and fertility issues. That is so interesting. So once the SIBO was resolved, how did the fertility rates go up? You know, there were a lot of my patients who um, did a lot better. Some got pregnant on their own naturally and were able to, you know, hold their pregnancies and have sweet little kiddos. Um, others uh, tolerated IVF a lot better and were able to, um, you know, start ovulating on their own with PCOS if they hadn't before or um, we're able to, uh, with endometriosis, there's oftentimes, um, endometriosis is really tricky. Um, and so patients who have had multiple surgeries and then it regrew, I definitely saw sometimes after we balanced out the, the SIBO that the endometriosis 
would um, regrow slower or um, not at all. We would just get a little bit longer window between um, those surgeries so that those patients could have more options for trying to get pregnant. Um, yeah. What, what do you think that is, that the translocation of that bacteria into the small intestine would have so many ramifications? Do you think it was like a physicality thing where simply there was the distension and so it messed up the, the geography there physically? Yeah. Or what do you think it was? I've thought about it a lot and um, a sort of an aha moment for me came with looking at one of my colleagues' um, videos. He's a He's a surgeon who does a lot of endometriosis uh, surgeries and um, with laparoscopic medicine. And uh, he takes a video during the surgery and he was removing or moving aside the small intestine um, to get to the, the uterus. And it was a good reminder for me about just sort of basic locations of anatomy and how the organs snug up against each other. And because the small intestine does really overlay not just the uterus, but over top of the ovaries. Um, and when I think about methane type bacteria, it's a pretty noxious gas, <laughs> pretty stinky. And if I think about what that might be like, I imagine it would kind of seep into the surrounding region. Um, and for me, uh, you know, I like to have visuals of things. It seems to me like a, a fog or a smog, if you will, um, that's in that whole pelvic bowl. And um, my perspective on that is that, you know, when the, the ovaries have to have this finite, you know, very specific conversation that they have with the brain and with the uterus. And if there's a smog present in that, it makes for a really tricky conversation. So if the ovaries are trying to talk to the brain and the brain talk back down to the ovaries, the messages could get lost. And so then in my perspective, I often then think, you know, about longer cycles, um, no ovulation for many months, um, and this mis miscommunication that happens with endometriosis. We're still trying to figure out why that happens, but why in some women does the immune system not notice the endometrial tissue sitting on the ovary or sitting on the intestines and things like that, whereas in other individuals, the body cleans it up really well. And so again, it's like coming back to that smog, you know, if the neighborhood is not very happy, then some other neighboring structures, um, you know, can really get affected too, in my perspective. I wonder if it's the body's way of protecting, um, protecting the host, right? So if the egg is surrounded by smog and the body would be saying like, it's not a safe environment beyond just that like communication thing you were talking about. I wonder if it's just like survival of the fittest kind of thing. Like, yeah, possibly. I mean, we're not sure. It's definitely debated about the role of how SIBO can get passed in utero or not. And if it can get passed with vaginal flora or not, uh, because we're still trying to learn about all the nuances of how flora passes between the different parts of the body, between the intestine um, and the vagina. And, you know, there's all different theories about these sort of microscopic um, transporters of flora uh, into the breast milk and things like that too. And so it's potentially adaptive if the body notices that there's a floral imbalance. Um, that could be 
something for sure. So it is it's very tricky. I think if, if uh, there was a premise to the summits is that SIBO is tricky, definitely. Yes. What, do you, what is your typical um, way of approaching SIBO? Is it the same that pretty much everyone's been talking about, either the um, antimicrobials or the antibiotics? And if it is, what do you do that makes maybe a little bit different? Do you have like a little secret couple of tips that you've seen helps with uh, not only compliance, but also results? Yeah, I think, um, you know, my specialty has really become in trying to identify where SIBO might be presenting that's atypical, you know, with the pelvic bowl complaints, with pelvic pain, um, even complaints also with depression, anxiety, some of these places where, you know, mental health complaints. Um, and uh, my approach is if I'm suspecting it and I don't see these, these symptoms sort of moving away um, pretty easily, then I do test for it. Um, I don't like to treat presumptively. Um, and so I do like to make sure that it's there and give a sense of how significant of overgrowth and what we're looking at at hydrogen or methane and to what extent. Um, but then uh, because I work in such a big integrative clinic, I often do lean on my colleagues who know a lot about you know, how to, uh, to treat the SIBO while I'm working um, with more of the blood flow component and the lymphatic flow component. I do a lot of um, my abdominal therapy, the Arvigo techniques, and I find that that in conjunction with a SIBO treatment, whether it's antimicrobials, antibiotics, elemental diet, um, can be really helpful because then we're kind of reinvigorating those organs, getting that communication pathway open back up, helping to clear out that smog with some gentle um, massage techniques or acupuncture. And so that's sort of how I try and support my patients a lot with that. Um, we, we've talked to Larry Warren from Clear Passage. So if, if anyone's listened to that, um, episode, then you know about adhesions and the possibility of adhesions uh, being an underlying cause of SIBO, abdominal adhesions and the organs and all that. So you just mentioned a specific abdominal technique as well. Can you just talk to us about that? Now say the name of it again also. So I, the official name is the Arvigo Techniques of Maya Abdominal Therapy. So Rosita Arvigo um, is an amazing um, woman, and uh, she has sort of split her uh, career between um, Belize and um, uh, the States for a really long time. And she, uh, we're really gifted in that she uh, is now the lineage holder for um, these techniques she learned from a, a Mayan shaman, uh, Donnelly Hilponte, um, in Brazil, and a, a midwife there, uh, Miss Hortense Robinson, and took their techniques as well as her own training as a napropath, and she combined those into these Arvigo techniques, which it's a gorgeous massage. It's very gentle, um, not deep visceral manipulation. It's just a gentle massage for the belly and the back. Um, as a doctor, I love doing the massage because it's um, every part of it is not just about relaxation, but it really has benefits to the nerves, 
the organs, the, you know, working on the adhesion potential, um, the lymphatic flow, which is so important when there's been a long history of inflammation or congestion um, in the body. And so it's been a nice, um, I think, uh, adjunctive piece to my practice that it's very well known for fertility, but it's so good for bowel disorders um, and chronic pain, which oftentimes does go hand in hand, but not always. I think one of the biggest things for me that has had an impact is visceral manipulation. And um, when you hear the words visceral manipulation, it just it sounds so brutal, but in actuality, it is so gentle. It, I'm just, I'm astonished at how gentle it is and it doesn't cause an inflammation response, which I so appreciate. So um, I love this idea of her techniques. Has she trained other people around? Oh, the yeah, she's trained probably at this point, thousands of people. She has trainings um, internationally and in the States. And she's trained a lot of people who are now teachers of her techniques because um, I believe she's still in her, in her 70s at this point, um, and a, a grandma, so cutting back on teaching herself, but has a, a nice network of really phenomenal teachers and uh, staff. Very cool. So we'll, um, so it's, can you spell it for me? A, I don't want to guess. So Arvigo is A-R-V-I-G-O, is Rosita Arvigo, it's her last name, so the Arvigo Techniques, and, um, uh, and the website is underneath, is under that name for, and there's a list of providers throughout the states and internationally who do um, that type of uh, massage techniques or manual therapy. Very yeah. good. Yeah, it's definitely worth a try, right? If everything else hasn't worked, uh, why not? Why not yeah, give it a try? I mean, for me, I feel like there's no harm in in trying. I think it's relaxing, if nothing else. It, you know, for some people, it's definitely able to address um, adhesions and congestion and blood flow and pain. And then, just like anything else, it's not a good modality for others because you're right. There are some, you know, visceral techniques that are gentle and then there's others that aren't. So <laughs> a whole lot of options out there and different providers interpret things differently through their hands. So, so true. So true. In your practice, have you noticed in general that there's an increase in infertility? I realize that people must come to you because that's, you know, part of their, their series of problems, but have you noticed that at all in, in your observations across population? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty well talked about in the medical research and in the fertility um, community that there's definitely um, uh, an increase in fertility in infertility struggles. Um, I think it's, it's multifactorial and there's lots of theories about why that might be. And some of it, I think, is also complicated by the fact that we have, um, you know, a lot of women who are choosing to work. Um, and prioritizing career later in their life than they might have done a couple of decades ago. And so um, some theories are, you know, just even wondering about that piece that we're looking at women who are starting trying um, for pregnancy for the first time when they're in their late 30s or early 40s, um, when maybe several decades ago, we might have been looking more at them trying in their 20s. Um, and, and that in and of itself just uh, is a factor. But then there's lots of theories about um, environmental effects. And we definitely know that the, the eggs do age 
over time in what they're exposed to. Um, and then our world is becoming, you know, increasingly more, has more of a toxic burden. And so, uh, you know, working with providers who help us, help our bodies optimize their ability to detoxify and balance. But there's a lot that, you know, people have been exposed to in terms of foods and, you know, farm exposures and water exposures and soil exposures. So. Mold. Mold. <laughs> Mold and then the, the frequencies and the vibrations. <laughs> well, all kinds of stuff. And so much of it is really hard to test and figure out for certain. And, you know, that's the hardest part of those diagnoses of unexplained infertility is sometimes we never will know or increasingly in my practice i'm seeing premature ovarian failure or insufficiency so women who are finding themselves in a perimenopause state in their early 30s or late 20s um, and so there's uh, a lot that's going on that i think we're trying to understand because uh, there's some rapid changes i think in our in our culture and especially with and male fertility is a you know factor too where you know the WHO has you know multiple times decreased what they call a good sperm count and a you know optimal um, sperm analysis uh, because in general our averages are shifting internationally. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it, it makes sense. It makes sense. I wonder if SIBO has anything to do with low sperm count. I think so. Really? Uh, yeah, I definitely look at it in my male factor fertility patients. And, um, and um, I think that same idea about the, the local environment, um, that congestion can then be affecting um, the prostate and the blood flow into the testes and um, through some of the small little tubes that are going through that region. And um, we've definitely had some luck. The main place I see it in um, semen analysis is more on the um, agglutination uh, is sort of one factor. It's where the sperm tend to stick to each other um, and then have trouble moving around. <laughs> um, and so that I've definitely seen improve uh, when we treat SIBO, if that's present. Um, because agglutination is thought to happen when there's uh, inflammation or infection. And classically, we thought about that more as prostatic uh, inflammation or infection, but I'm thinking about it sort of more broadly about intestinal infection, inflammation like SIBO. And I've definitely seen that parameter really change. I'm still watching with my patients to see if it helps with um, count and morphology, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so morphology is about the shape of the sperm. And when they're not in a good environment to grow, it, it's hard to make the right shape. And so that makes sense to me too, that that could be uh, a factor. Very interesting, very interesting. I think you're really onto something there. And then you've had great results, right? So. It's kind of yeah. hard to argue with that. Plus, I mean, intuitively, it makes sense to me, but I just, I love that we're able to even 
broach the subject of a connection because this could be an answer for so many people and then that you've been working with it for with it with so many of your patients yeah it's exciting it's good and i'm you know i'm very thankful that i work in such a integrative community and clinic that you know can make these cross uh, system connections and as naturopaths we tend to think about the whole body in general but it's nice to be able to sort of think outside the box of how things might traditionally present. And, um, and especially for you know, men and women who have history of chronic pa pelvic pain, um, it's nice, even if there's not a fertility component, uh, it's nice to have another way to look at it that might be um, a little more gentle <laughs> than some of the, the other options out there for you know, pelvic pain with them my abdominal therapy and with SIBO treatment, um, that's uh, oftentimes a nicer option if they can avoid surgery or you know, some more intense medications. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. When you're, when you're t working with your patients who have SIBO, if you find that like nothing seems to be helping them, right? Do you have any like, do you do elemental diet? What's that sort of last resort for you or that wild card for you? Um, <clears throat> we definitely do elemental diet. Um, I don't know that anymore we think about it as a wild card. <laughs> um, it's oftentimes so well tolerated, especially now that, you know, integrative therapeutics has their um, professional elemental formula, physician's elemental formula, um, because that, uh, taste-wise is a lot better than what we had in the past with 5 and X, um, or even the homemade um, uh, elemental formula. Um, but, and for a lot of patients, that's more affordable uh, than being able to do Zyfaxan um, or to get the, uh, the herbal protocol that can get a little pricey too. Um, uh, I don't know anymore about what is wild card. We tend to be tenacious and really just want to, I, I think we think about SIBO as a, a chronic illness um, and sort of like diabetes or something like that, that it you know has to be managed for potentially a lifetime. There's every once in a while sometimes like the miracle cure, one treatment and they're better forever, but most individuals, it it's a lifetime worth of management, whatever that means, if it's a modified diet or, you know, every few years getting a retreatment or just, you know, being conscious of the decisions and choices they make, know that's an area of weakness um, for them and could potentially be an area of weakness for their children. Um, and so just kind of watching that and working on long-term management, I think is where we often go. I think that's so important because SIBO patients, me being one of them, of course, it's a really obnoxious condition and we want to get well as soon as possible and the diet component's a pain. And uh, when Dr. Seebecker told me that it usually takes about four years for her patients to really figure out how to manage it so that they're not like having their lives run by their SIBO. It was, um, I've told the story before, but it was a relief in some ways and like real bummer in other ways. But just to have that long-term perspective that you're referring to is so good for managing expectations. 
too. Absolutely. When I did my first round of Zyfaxin, I thought that it was going to be take this 14 days and you're going to be well. Well, that is not what happened to me. And very, like you're saying, very rarely happens to people. Bless them if they, if that's happened to, to them. Okay. They're, They're probably not on this little summit listening because that SIBO is long gone. But it, um, it's such a different mindset than the typical condition. And that's why my company is actually called Chronic Condition Rescue because I am dealing with these chronic conditions and it, you really do need to be rescued or you need to rescue yourself. Yeah. Um, if you've not really, I don't like labels, but sometimes they're helpful. And then just to really go, yeah, this is a chronic condition. This is something that I need to manage, like you said, like diabetes or whatever. And once I tried that on as a concept, it made me less anxious because I realized that it was like, um, it was just a, a, a new way of being. It wasn't yeah. my preferred way of being, but it was a new way of being that if I at least embraced it and went and took the pressure off of like, I have to be well in two weeks, it, it, it helps. Yeah, and I think then it's a little more empowering rather than disempowering because if the self-expectations and the negative self-talk that can come in when somebody cheats on the diet or, um, you know, it's about finding that sweet spot where you live your life and you enjoy your life and you don't struggle um, with the symptoms, um, whether they be the, you know, typical IBS type symptoms or you know, if they show up differently, like my patients have with pelvic pain or menstrual irregularities or uh, fertility struggles and figuring out, you know, where your priorities lie and then giving yourself wiggle room to also just find that balance with managing the chronic condition and, um, and finding out what life looks like there and finding the sweet spot in that because when it's managed well, it feels good and my patients have better energy and better mood and less terrible menstrual cramps. I mean, even just that can you know, make a whole difference in life or less migraines or, you know, less bouts of depression. And so looking at it from that bigger picture of, wow, uh, then it becomes that, well, maybe those grains aren't worth it or that wheat isn't worth it or, you know, and the different things because it, it to them gets linked to these symptoms that are incredibly uncomfortable, even, you know, just like the more classic symptoms of IBS are incredibly uncomfortable too. In your practice, you were, you were talking about how you um, help people with SIBO who have, it manifest as also some depression and some anxiety as yes. sort of part of the cascade. What do, you, what do you think is causing that and, and what do you do for them? How can we help somebody today who maybe feels anxious or has bouts of depression that could be linked to their SIBO? What, what, what's, what's your take on all of that? Um, well, as a naturopath, we're you know, trained in sort of understanding the physiology of the body and, and thinking about pathology along those lines. And what we know is that um, a, a large percentage, um, you know, over three quarters of our immune system lives around our gut. And so um, when, when there's some dysfunction with the membrane um, of our intestine, then some 
big molecules can come through that can be inflammatory to the immune system and also cross that blood brain barrier or irritate the blood brain barrier in a way that's um, maladaptive. Um, and also, you know, that if the body can't fully break down, let's say, the amino acids into the components where they can be, you know, turned into neurotransmitters, and, you know, that can be really hard for um, depression, anxiety. So for me, it's about finding that middle ground between um, helping with the inflammation component. So if it's a neurotoxic effect, like oftentimes we talk about gluten for some individuals and depending on their genetics, um, gliadin, uh, if it's not broken down well, can be neurotoxic. So that inflammatory component and sometimes just treating the SIBO, tightening up those gap junctions in the small intestine, um, really decreasing that inflammation in that whole region um, can help their brain because their body is not under this onslaught of inflammation, um, can help their immune system for autoimmune conditions where uh, their body is confused. Again, that smog, a lot goes on. You know, when the bulk of your immune system is living in that smog, then it can mistake, it can attack the small intestine itself. Um, because one of the main theories about SIBO is it's an autoimmune condition. It can attack the thyroid, attack the joints. And, you know, so thinking about how can we minimize some of these chronic conditions, other chronic conditions, autoimmune conditions that um, are really debilitating. Um, but then, you know, the other piece of how do you optimize, because the main way to really give people, help people with their products that build amino acids is to, you know, I hopefully help them break down their foods well for that or give them supplements or even if they're taking pharmaceutical medications want to make sure that they're able to absorb them and assimilate them and get them to the brain um, in a way that's efficient and you can't do that unless the, the small intestine is nice and healing. What are some of the things that you do to heal to heal the small intestine other than you know you're killing the bugs with yeah. the, the treatments that we know about, but what do you do? What are, do you have some favorite things, some favorite go-tos to help make those junctions tighter and, and anything else to help heal that area? Yeah. I mean, I think you've probably talked to my colleagues and pick their brain a lot about, you know, their secrets for nice, good things to um, sort of chronic management of SIBO um, I'm a real minimalist and a lot of my patients don't like taking a ton of supplements. Um, and so I really like to do the, the massage that I do is really soothing um, the intestines and doing acupuncture, um, <clears throat> really working with them on stress management and, um, and finding a good work-life balance and getting some good exercise and working with their diet. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and then because for everyone, it's going to be different about what supplements that they can tolerate and what's a good um, choice for them to work with those gap junctions. And um, because it's a tricky balance, I'd say, because a lot of what we're trained in in natural medicine historically for soothing are these thick um, gelatinous kind of we call them demulcent um, products that can be really flaring for SIBO. So you know, it's a real uh, balance of what are kind of sort of nutritive um, things. But I like uh, amino acid blends um, to help people absorb for their um, 
brain function uh, while we're working on these. And usually they're high enough potency, like I use um, Deproloft um, by Thorne. It has a blend of amino acids and I find that it's a high enough amount that even for my um, intestinally challenge clients, absorption challenge, um, that they can still get enough amino acids that it helps them feel more grounded, less anxious, more rooted. Um, but if their you know, um, digestion is really compromised, then working with these you know, five element acupuncture is an amazing opportunity for mental emotional balance. It's sort of a branch of acupuncture that's really specific about mental emotional balance and um, you know, having a good therapist and <laughs> good support, all of that you know, while the gut's healing up to support that. When, when it comes to Chinese medicine and acupuncture, have you ever seen a direct result of improving SIBO through maybe Chinese herbs and acupuncture versus the typical antimicrobials and antibiotics? My Chinese uh, practitioner here where I live, she, um, she doesn't really treat SIBO, but when we would do like tonifying things for my intestines and that kind of thing, and, I, and motility in general with the acupuncture. But I was just wondering if you've ever found like a good little, a little um, combination of those types of things, or is it just a tonifying? I mean, we've definitely seen um, how, I mean, Chinese herbs are magical and, um, you know, uh, I think it's an incredible specialty. I was trained in it, but I would not say that I'm specialized in it. I think that takes kind of a lifetime of focus on it. It's a real deep ancient medicine. And my colleagues who are quite good with Chinese herbs, um, we find that, uh, again, just like Western herbs, where historically the things we thought about for treating the gut and soothing the gut as being these kind of thicker herbs, um, these more gelatinous herbs can be really uh, aggravating for SIBO. So, and a lot of Chinese granules um, are incredibly aggravating for SIBO because the Chinese herbs are tacked onto uh, corn or gluten uh, or soy. Um, and so then you're not getting the benefit of the herb, you're getting flared by the delivery method. Um, and so then it usually leaves um, making your own Chinese herbs, which is amazing but time consuming and really stinky and you know very unique flavor profile some people love it <laughs> some people hate it um <laughs> and so and and the time for you know cooking and decocting those herbs yourself but if you have a good chinese herbalist who knows that nuance and really can think through um i think it takes a, a branching off of the classical training because a, a lot of SIBO patients do need tonifying because they definitely have a weak gut and a weak ability to absorb, but those tonifying herbs are often very sugary, very sweet. Um, and so even when decocting them, uh, making a tea, you still have to have an herbalist that's savvy about SIBO and knowing that certain components um, of these herbs and how to find that balance between the sweet ones and and actually adding in uh, more of sometimes the moving ones that just keep it from being too too sticky too cloying too aggravating 
Um, but I think if you have a provider that can put both of those knowledge sets together, that can be a really nice option. That would be amazing. Yeah. That would really be amazing. You're amazing. Oh, thank you. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us and your experiences yeah, and your observations. <laughs> because I know that there are people watching this right now who are struggling with fertility issues and they're like, what? It could be my SIBO? Are you kidding? And so we wish you all the best. And, thank you. Um, I appreciate you providing this forum because for me, I mean, I'm just one provider in a clinic and seeing some patterns and I really, you know, want for my patients who struggle with fertility that they have some ways that they can think outside the box and because I imagine most women have and men have tried a lot of things, you know, with their uh, fertility issues and to have something else that they can look at and that might be the silver bullet for them is uh, really special. It's very exciting. Lots of possibilities there. Thank yeah. you so much, Dr. Stephanie. What a pleasure. What a delight you are. And we really appreciate you taking the time. It was worth the wait of over a year to finally talk to you. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.